Hello and welcome to the Analytics Edge, sponsored by NetSpring. The Analytics Edge is a podcast about real-world stories of innovation. We're here to explore how data-driven insights can help you make better business decisions. I'm your host, Thomas Dong, VP of Marketing at NetSpring. And for today's episode, my co-host is Vijay Ganesan, co-founder and CEO at NetSpring. Thank you for joining me on the show today, Vijay. Great to be here, Tom. Really looking forward to talking to these two guys. In today's episode, we'll be exploring several topics that are top of mind for CIOs, from the promise of spatial computing to AI and data strategies. We're joined by two very special guests, Bask Iyer, the former CIO of VMware, Dell, Juniper Networks, Honeywell, and GlaxoSmithKline, and longtime advisor to Zoom, and Awanash Sinha, Zoom's current CIO. Zoom, of course, grew to global mainstream prominence during the COVID-19 pandemic, but had already for years firmly established themselves as the most reliable and easiest to use and set up web conferencing tool. Bask Awanash, we're delighted to have you both with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Bask Awanash, thank you so much for being on the show. You guys are thought leaders in the space, lots of extensive experience in the business, so really looking forward to hearing your thoughts today. Thank you, Vijay. All right, let's start with Apple's launch of their Vision Pro augmented reality headset. And with this launch, AR continues to hold great promise for transforming the customer experience and how consumers will interact with businesses and products in the future. Bask, how should CIOs and data leaders be thinking about AR or VR? I think, firstly, I made the mistake of betting against Apple few times. You know, when they came up with the headsets, I thought, how much can you do with the headphones? You know, headphones is a headphone, and can you make it physically better than a physical headset? I was wrong. And so I've been, uh, I've been wrong on all these counts. Now, I was just blown away with experience. I think Apple has focused on experience. And sometimes corporate CIOs don't care much about experience. They're, they're, they're getting into practicality of things. This product actually allows you to dream a little bit. And, uh, you know, you could only imagine version two and three of this and how much value it would be to even industries, whether it's medical, healthcare, to help doctors remotely uh, diagnose and do things, or, you know, like engineering in a company like uh, aerospace companies, you know, they can remotely wear this and, and inspect several things. So I'm, I'm not going to bet against it. It is expensive. But, um, you know, I never thought I would buy an expensive phone. I never thought I would pay $1,000 for a phone. And here we are. Every other year, we'll pay $1,000 to get the next version of a phone. So uh, I would recommend the CIOs. CIOs, as you, as, uh, you know, are risk over. Generally, they wait till the technology is all proven out and wait till somebody else has done a use case and case study before they experiment. I would urge them to take a chance and go forward. And then you create the use case. Don't wait for somebody else. Don't follow. Be a kind of a path leader. It's not that expensive to get for a corporation to drive you things up. I'm excited. It's a good toy, but it's going to be very useful and very soon. Avinash, you know, one of the use cases Apple is featuring is meetings. And obviously, Zoom is the leader in the business. And they uh, proclaim, make meetings more meaningful. Right? So how is Zoom thinking about AR and VR for collaboration? Yeah, that's a good question, Vijay. I think these two companies are pioneering in their own space, and then they are coming together, trying to create a synergistic value creation for our consumer space as well as for the enterprise spaces. And help you ex explain this this way. Think of this hybrid world when we are people are coming in both in offices, few people remotely. How do we create an immersive experience 
and inclusive experiences where the quality of experience is no different whether you are in a room or you are at home. And that's where the intersection of two best of the breed providers in terms of the collaboration software and in terms of the devices comes together. And we have done it at uh, other circumstances also. If you look at it like a year ago or something, we launched in Tesla, Tesla car an experience for accessing seamlessly using the devices and the camera in the car to attend the meeting, right? Think of on a larger scale, we are doing this partnership to do that. And key thing about is not just the product, the basic core values of these two companies, if you look at it, Zoom's products are experience-driven. We were differentiator in meeting experience compared to our competitions. Apple is always cares about the customer experience. So there is a value level synergies also. We care about bass little bit touched around experience design. These two companies care about experience designs. So that's a natural partnership between us. Also, one more point, uh, right from our CEO, we talk about, we use a language of customer happiness. And Apple is all about, we don't use the word delight, uh, but customer is happiness and delight is also very critical for Apple. So on these two terms, if you look at it broadly, two best of the breed players coming, adding synergetic value, creating an inclusive hybrid experience, and the core values of the companies are aligned. So there would be a lot of magic people will experience just like any Apple product launch post GA, let people realize what the experience is versus we talking about now. Yeah, it's very interesting how the user experience is so central to, to both uh, Apple's and, and Zoom's strategy. And I'm delighted to hear that I can now take Zoom calls <laughs> in, in my Tesla. Um, so you obviously have many, many uh, devices that you support over at Zoom and user experience is, is so critical. I'm curious how you might be using AI techniques to um, make uh, that experience uh, delightful for your customers. Uh, generative AI, large language models, for example, are you know, beginning to gain mainstream attention. Many other AI techniques have been around for decades now. What are some of the uh, innovative applications of AI you're using uh, to help with the user experience? Yeah, Tom, uh, if you look at it, we have been using AI for a very long period of time. If you look at how did we create the differentiation in the meeting experience itself, to start with, the video quality on low, low bandwidth networks, different kind of network settings, the audio quality, the noise cancellations. Behind all of these stuff is machine learning models, a lot of AI. That has been running for the last four or five years that we created us the uh, differentiation in the marketplace. Now, more recently, if you look at the contact centers that we have, the pro other modules, the products that we have, Zoom virtual agents, intelligent routing, near real-time meeting summary, uh, near real-time translations. These are complex use cases. Underneath is all AI, AI technologies, all kinds of AI technology. AI is a broad term, right? Machine learning and statistical analysis, LLM recently. Everybody is now pivoting to chat GPT, but this is just one of the tools in the broad AI umbrella. Now, some of the tools we have that's heavily leveraging the large language models, particularly if you look at Zoom IQ. As all our conversations are digital these days, there is an opportunity to do converse, conversational analytics on top of it, sentiment analysis on top of it, 
and we have created something called Zoom IQ because we have underlying data of this digital interactions amongst us. And that is leveraging both quantitative side of AI, which I call like ML, and then the qualitative side of conversations. And this is also underneath his ML model though. And we're bringing this to together. So across our product groups now, we have been using AI in the past. Now we added and augmented with LLM. So we are talking about employee collaborations and, and the customer collaborations where AI is not an add-on or bolt-on thing, it's embedded as a fabric inside it horizontally. So that's our positioning. And we had a hard internal conversations around how do we go about this from a technology architecture perspective. And we have taken an approach where we are going with the hybrid and federated AI strategy. And I'll explain very quickly what, what we mean by that. So we are leveraging our proprietary AI models. We are also leveraging, have a potential to leverage any open source public data like ChatGPT or others models. We have got into alliance with a third party uh, uh, partners like Anthropic, we have made investments in them. And we are giving customer a choice to leverage their own model to augment with us. So it's an open, flexible architecture that not locks the customer into one approach because these things will evolve and we want to go with the flexibility. So we are calling this as a federated architecture for AI ML. So in nutshell, our product had been using AI for long. We have doubled down on this effort. It's now embedded as a fabric across our product lines. And then we have now right technical architecture to support evolving marketplace as we go into this. That's interesting what you said about federated architecture that you don't want lock-in and you want to give you give people the freedom to plug in their own models and these models are rapidly evolving. So it's very interesting. And very contextualized as well, right? So it's the yeah. same Zoom IQ could be deployed in healthcare versus financial client, client relationship with the wealth management people and so many contexts. So then it could be optimized for that vertical with augmentation. You want to ask a follow-on question I think everybody on the planet now knows Zoom because of the COVID pandemic. You know, you have young children who can connect to Zoom even more easily than our parents um, now. It's become so embedded in everybody's lives. And Zoom, of course, has become a noun and a verb in popular culture. Education has driven a lot of new requirements. And one of the ones that I, as a parent, heard a lot about is like, how do you make sure the kids are engaged when the teachers don't even know how to teach online yet. And we hear about, you know, all hands meetings in a corporate setting now where business leaders can track engagement of their employees during the meetings. How have you applied AI to kind of solve some of these uh, new emerging requirements that, you know, just obviously popped up and became so, so vital to how we do business or how we interact in collaborating in, in kind of this new normal? I think this is a, a for our engineering team, possibilities are immense. Technology already exists. It's a question of whether we prioritize from a backlog perspective to look at it, right? It's huge for abstracting and we are partly doing it for sales. So when you are on a sales call, Zoom IQ, we are giving and developing this, uh, uh, this kind of insight and giving that how was the pitch customer feel like engaged or not engaged? And what is my peer group, other sales reps are doing? Why that call was successful? Why that transaction was successful, 
whether I listen to you, I didn't ask any questions. If I'm a customer, this means I'm kind of either uh, not coming across or I'm disengaged and I just give you a time, right? Or if I ask you too many questions and all tone of the questions was critical, I'm just trying to find a reason to sort you down now why I should not move forward with you, right? There's a lot can be done, right? Now, I think that's where the next wave of automation is coming. It's going to be, nobody will be talking as separate AI, ML kind of stuff. It will be embedded. It's the automation 2.0 or 3.0, whatever you want to call it. Just like we had in, what is that? Now, Industrial Revolution 4.0, something like that. That's that's with the, we are at cusp of this. I can feel that, Basque, you may sense it this way. It will take time to evolve, but, and it these things takes time. I'll have a concrete example. 1998-99.com came up, right? E-commerce came up. Till pandemic, companies were, brick and mortar companies were shifting from their on-prem to uh, 20-year cycle. 20-year cycle took to become mainstream. Takes time. The only thing I would, uh, Tom, is an interesting question. The only thing I'm saying is, uh, I, I'm truly convinced, it took me all this time to realize, I'm truly convinced, you know, the skills I developed were in high school because I had a few good teachers. It's not my master's, it's not my PhD, it's not my whatever. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot of it is high school. You, the way you come across the soft skills, your English skills, the language skills. Um, unfortunately, those teachers are not recognized, they're not paid well, and they're doing a lot of, you know, non-value-added job, you know, grading people, checking if people are paying attention, and so on. So I am bullish on AI. I'm not scared. I have a feeling we still do a lot of things we don't like to do, right? And and this, these teachers are doing a lot of work that has got nothing to do with what they went to school for and their past. I think AI can take care of all of that. You know, the take the mundane things out on people, whatever. So they could focus their passion. And, and I don't, I'm still an idealist. I don't think AI is going to have the passion to have that thing that the teacher can teach that's Exactly, it's sparking you to say, I'm going to study math, right? Uh, you know, so we all know that story where some teacher inspired you to do something and they're getting paid nothing in any country. This is the universal truth because nobody gets paid and they're doing like really awful uh, stuff, right? Instead of teaching. So I think things like Zoom made it in interesting, right? I mean, I remember my sister's a teacher. She said, Oh, thank God I can connect in a, in a so quickly. And not worry about if my microphone set up, camera set up, this set up. He's not going to school to do all. He wants to click a button on his phone and start uh, talking, right? But there's still a lot of things that she does now, I'm sure, that are better than useless. So I think the promise of AI is removing mind-numbing jobs that all of us do. So we can work on what is truly our passion, what we were actually put on the earth to do. So I'm pretty optimistic about it. I love how you stated that. So we can all focus on our passions and let's automate all the mundane things that we hate doing. And especially for teachers who are so undervalued, but so critical to uh, to our development as a society. So that's, that's fantastic uh, perspective. Bask, I'm, I'm sure you're seeing this a lot. You know, every company, CIO, CDOs, they're tasked with coming up with the generative AI initiative. I mean, that's the that's the chart where everybody is waking up to this and realizing there's a lot of potential and they know they need to do something, but they don't know what, where do, where do we start, right? And you know, this is this is big, we have to get into this. It, our competitors can disrupt us if we don't get into it, but where do I start? So what would be your advice to a, a C-level exec at a large company 
that is tasked with coming up with a strategy around generative AI. So I lost my bet already. My wife told me, can you do one podcast, one meeting without mentioning ChatGPT? I lost it. In the first five minutes of the conversation, we've lost the bet. Uh, yeah, there's so much buzz, right? So but the problem is at, at this stage, the buzz is coming from at a board level at the CEO level, right? So they are asking the question you're asking me is, what are we doing with uh, generative AI? Now that they kind of use the consumer version of ChatGPT or... So they are, they are asking the question. Um, unfortunately, a lot of my, uh, I'm advising a few CIOs, but some, a lot of the CIOs are on a wait and see attitude, which is just a mistake with this tech, right? They're waiting to see what other use cases can people do. And a lot of them are just answering, you know, the board requests them to say, what are you doing with uh, ChatGPT? And they write a white paper, which is kind of regurgitation of what other companies are doing. Like, I mean, every use case is that we can do a customer service, we can do this, whatever. What the board now wants is actual projects that they can work in place and some some practical experiments to do. So, um, you know, I'm actually advising the CXOs and uh, CEOs more or less to say, go ask them what they're doing today. Don't ask them for a white paper of what they'll do tomorrow. Because if they're not doing something today, even if it's wrong, right, if they're doing some silly experiments now, those are the CIOs, CPOs, and people you should bet on. Uh, not the folks who give you a white paper on it, because we don't know. I, I mean, listen, I, I, we all work in AI. I, I just, uh, somebody reminded me, my wife reminded me, we both did the thesis on AI 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, so AI has been around, and, and but we couldn't make simple things. We couldn't do natural language processing. We couldn't tell the computer to differentiate between Larry Bird and, and Larry the Bird. I mean, it got confused. Uh, we wrote the worst programs and we struggled. We actually got divorced even before, before we got married because of the project in the AI. So um, the issue now is though, I, and, and we always thought that neural networks was kind of a bogus thing, right? I mean, we, all of us felt like, unless you have logic, how can you program some computer to do it? What is scary for me is this seems actually seems to work. We feed it a bunch of data, and this thing seems to have a mind of its own, if you will, right? I mean, the, the academics are going to freak out at the year of this, but to me, it feels like, what is the logic? How did you figure it out? I just fed you a bunch of data. So the best thing to do for CIOs is to not be so pragmatic and wait till this wave goes uh, and do some experiments. Set up a structure where you can take some chances, uh, you know, I recall it pre-dotyping. We used to do that in uh, in DMM and Zoom. A lot of folks are doing it. Try something, see where it goes, and then you know come up with those use cases that makes relevance to your business, rather than doing it into a, like an ERP pro. This is not an ERP project. This is getting to change your culture structure to be more experimental. That's one. The second is I'm thinking are CIOs the right people to lead it anyway. There may be a few people, few CIOs and CPOs, who have the charter and the vision to lead it. But I think your business leaders are going to take it over. I mean, the marketing folks are going to say, why am I having a call center set up overseas, doing accent training to save a few dollars when I can do it intelligent, right? And, and I don't know if you guys saw the viral video from Tesla uh, on their call centers where, you know, the roof guard is calling it looks like a normal person asking you about their experience and what cars they are buying and kind of leading them, ending up with uh, scheduling a test drive, right? And uh, 
that is done completely. And, and it looks to me like this person doesn't know he's talking to a robot, right? I mean, so that those are the kind of things you should experiment and you make some fail failures quickly and then move on. So that that's that's the challenge is how many of the CIOs and CTOs are taking those risks and, and B, they have to start some of the projects, so ERP projects and and you know, sales projects and other kind of projects, they have to they have to stop because you don't know where the future is headed. There's no point trying to do some big uh, enterprise project right now and missing out the immediate opportunity. So, Vask, if you tell a, a data leader specifically that you have to start somewhere, uh, there's often questions around data quality. We don't have our data quality story and governance and all that stuff in place. And once we have that then we'll start these new initiatives. What would you say to that, those folks? You know, I can be very blunt. Avinash is going to be a little bit more polished, so wait for his answer as well. But my thing is, every company you go, you know, you hire somebody and say, hey, we're not able to get quality data on customers. We don't know which salesman is selling where. And they start out with our massive data quality is terrible. So they go into a process of, let's clean our product master, customer master, you know, that becomes a hundred-year product. And then they clean that project, and then the person leaves. The next uh, data officer comes in, and they start the same project. You know, let's clean up the data. And salespeople and business people are dying. But they are making decisions with, with spreadsheets and whatever information they could get or download certain information. Uh, they, they can't believe for that. Right? The, so the first thing I would do is do something. This is not a multi-year product. And second is do not throw every term that comes out as a science project. So... It used to be data reporting. You know, I need a sales report. Who's my top sales? That became a data management project. And then it became a data science project. Then a AI ML project. And now it's going to be a generative AI project. And the request from business is still, I need a report to know who my best salespeople are. Or where can I sell? Where can I put? So I am worried that we will now start rebranding our data bytes as AI ML people, or generative AI ML people. And the focus should be on uh, work with the data you have. There are some nice tools to to clean them. I'm, I can work with garbage data, but don't you know wait for this thing to be so perfect and then start your project because the companies are losing patience with that condition of data in the smaller company. Now for a real scientific, well-thought-out, logical answer and politically correct answer, let me turn it over to Avinash. Now, I'm agreeing with you in a principle, uh, Bas. If you look at it, it is true that there's no perfect state for data. Also, if you look at it, I think the practical approach that you're talking about, trying to make best out of what we have today and incrementally improve. I'm a great proponent. I've seen in industry two things. If you look at B2C data and B2B data, there's a distinct uh, characteristics differences between these two in terms of the data quality. In particularly for B2B data, enterprise businesses, if you look at it, the higher order of uh, the, the stack they are in terms of the size of the organizations and things like that, you can enrich that data much better with the third-party uh, companies that exist in industry today. But when we go lower down the order, uh, the enrichment, et cetera, is, is, is less, less uh, effective. Uh, Whereas from a truly from a business sense perspective, if you look at an enterprise market, uh, the top, most of the company make most of the money from the top two segment, top one segment, top thousand, top 500 accounts, right? And there the 
while there is a whole ocean cleanup is one prob- big problem, we can dissect the problem from keeping business lens in mind. Uh, I think that's a very practical approach. Prototype you discuss in other contexts is applies here too, right? Uh, third-party data, you can do machine learning, every data cleaning through machine learning, like identifying the names, which are looks like you're matching with transactions. Now there is a technology about uh, graph database, which you may be familiar with that also very deeply. It can look at the which which exact customer we interacted more and gives more weight onto those customers and ranking and ordering and cleansing and deduping and all that stuff. So the point here is that connecting technology to a business outcome, keeping an eye on that and taking an incremental approach. And there is no perfect state. No company of certain size and bigger can, can say that despite all these investments. So I'm pretty much aligned with you. And then the, the depending on the industry buzzwords that's going on at the moment and the roles get the same set of skills, the smartest set of people will move from a one job class to another job class and all that is stuff. And those would be the leaders in that. So we will look for it. The key thing is I call it like outcome enablers. Identifying top talent who are outcome enables will deploy whatever the right technology is. And those are the people who do well in their career, make impact in the company, and then move up in the career ladder. Great. I love the term outcome enablers. <laughs> we should advertise this as job outcome enabler. Yeah, that's a great direction. Or do something. My job description is, please do something. Do something. <laughs> I like Nike logo, right? Just do it. You know, I, I think the law of averages says there are, there are only so many AI specialists in the world. I mean, every one of us are working on AI. I'm going to say a thousand people who are really doing that groundbreaking work in AI. And the big companies and startup companies such as yourselves are going to grab them, right? So if you look at majority of the companies, it'll be almost impossible to hire really groundbreaking uh, AI. Um, but what they, you can hire is the outcome enabler. People who look and have the intelligence to say, yeah, I know this is what is happening in different companies. Let me have the partnership with the big ones, the Googles, uh, Amazon, et cetera. And also the emerging companies and do a few experiments that makes relevance to my business. If you wait for NetSpring, other companies to become, you know, a multi-billion dollar company with millions of customers and so on, you are not going to get the attention of the company that you can get right now. And you can you can kind of develop the product. You can you can you know I work very successfully even with Zoom. It looks like a giant company, but there have been times when we were able to provide feedback to the company, take chances with the company, and develop it and morph it into a product that makes sense to the enterprise and to Zoom. So one of the things I'm telling people is there's so many startups, so many companies, early stage companies who have really clever people that large companies may not be able to hire for various reasons, not just compensation. And they are dying to work with you. So just do that. I mean, you don't have to figure it out. Go and give the problem statement to them and say, hey, can you, if you have a data problem, go give it to a few people and see if they can figure it out and let the best person win. So, Avina, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about the modern data stack, big data. Specifically, we're seeing the emergence of cloud data warehouses and data lakes. They're becoming the central repository of data. And, you know, this idea of single source of truth for all enterprise data that's been talked about for years and years, but it's probably 
becoming more of a reality now with uh, with these modern cloud data warehouses. Um, and so obviously a lot of advantages in terms of security, consistency, manageability, single source of truth, no copies, you know, privacy, you know, all that kind of stuff. What, what are you seeing in this trend towards warehouse centricity and what would you advise data leaders and how should they be thinking about this approach? That's true, Vijay. Actually, uh, like if you look at any new new generation company, born cloud company, they are straight going to this architecture there where they are putting their data warehousing or sort of lake on the one of the hyperscalers. Now, there's a lot of advantage for this. Uh, if you look at industry, take a step back 10, 15, 20 years or so, uh, first thing was migration from on-prem to cloud was happening all transactional applications or SaaS applications. Any company, any founders like yourself, you, you, you're gonna create an idea, you're gonna straight go to cloud, one of the hyperscalers, and you're gonna build on that. Same thing, CIOs, CTOs, if they're coming up with a new project or new new asset they want to build, they will go on cloud. However, the legacy companies uh, are still in the journey of migrating from on-prem to cloud, even on transactional applications. But the advantage on data warehousing being on cloud is in many fold. Any large companies, if you're not on a cloud, then scaling becomes a problem in data warehousing, long-running job quarter claim problems, sales leader asking where are we landed, are we landed on target, what we committed to straight or not. And then finishing all the jobs uh, who are down into weeds and looking into whether in 24 hours can we finish all the jobs, whether for sales leader or for finance leaders and things like that. Those are things of the past in the cloud. So in the past, people, what they did to solve that scalability problem, they fragmented the data, they created the data marts, and then you have a different problem, latency problem, because these are all different islands now. Now we talk about AI ML. If all the data is together, not only is the latency issue is gone, you can write machine learning model and more parameters and input, more accurate analysis you can do, versus if you can have a very little set of data set in your own data marts. So it has a tremendous value. In that sense, and I see that as more and more cloud adoption happens on for data warehousing, either on to directly onto hyperscalers, any of the top hyper top three hyperscalers have their own certain core analytic solutions. But then there is market also has some couple of really large on top of that stack, a custom built purpose built data warehousing without naming any particular partners in that space, and we work with all of them. Uh, and so this trend is powerful and I see this will continue to happen. It will foster also innovations. If you think of you have to execute a lot of AIML model in an on-prem solution. So what would have happened? The CIOs and CTOs had to review the security and you have to ship a copy of data to that startup. Now a startup can plug and play in the same way. You just need to give access. It's like logical separations, right? They can be on the same. So power of innovation uh, going to be quite high and where we are with all AIML we talked about in the front of this call, that will work better on, on data warehousing on being the cloud. Now, a couple of things, I, if I project forward, I see convergence happening. So when, when you have the, and we are already experimenting to vast point of view here, pre-to-typing. So for us, we have hyperscalers where our transactional applications, a few of them are hosted. Now we have both one of the hyperscalers, two of the hyperscalers, and also custom-built or purpose-built they were housing cloud. And then we are thinking that, hey, these two are not two different islands. You remember in the past, you transact here and you report there. 
if you look at consumer applications, where is transaction, where is analytics are intertwined in there. It's a smart devices, a smart apps and all. Why enterprises are not smart? They're still talking, I'm going to transact here and then you're going to report over there, right? The cloud native architecture can bridge this gap. So this means I should be able to do that together and we are experimenting on this is totally doable so great promises uh, uh, along these lines and uh, i mean i can keep on talking about the benefits right so we are data marketplace is evolving because whoever the business partners we do business with their data is also on the same same cloud or things so you can share the data against each other without copying the data right so that has another advantage and my forward-looking view on these things is that eventually it will take time in industry. Everybody initially will go on uh, on uh, generative AI trying to do it their own, but market consolidation will happen, and some sort of market model marketplace will evolve. But that's little far down. First is the data marketplace, and then few years down the road, uh, machine learning or LLM model marketplace will evolve where you keep your data my ip is just on the model and we can operate across this that's very interesting we've talked about data marketplaces quite a bit and application marketplaces you're talking about like llm marketplaces model marketplaces that's that's very interesting you talked about experience how customer experience is so core uh, you know customer delight that is so core to success of zoom and apple I mean, obviously, to deliver on that kind of great experience, you have to have a lot of analytics. You have to have a really, really good pulse on every interaction that you have with the customer, both in product and out of product. And so data analytics is a powerful weapon for, particularly for product-led companies, where you have to have a really, really deep understanding of usage, behavior, to optimize metrics around conversion, engagement, retention, and things like that. And, and I'm sure Zoom is doing a lot in this area. What's your advice for analytics leaders in product-led companies? You know, what should they do to achieve the same level of customer delight and customer experience that uh, Zoom has been able to achieve? I think, Vijay, you touched a little bit uh, around uh, customer experience. In, we are a subscription business, uh, and uh, in subscription business, you have to really closely follow the life cycle of customers. And it's an infinity loop, right? The even existing customers, you may be looking at feature adoptions, you may be looking at churn, you may be looking at how we can attach, create more value, make them aware about the new products and offering coming together. And internally, for the sales department, marketing department, or customer support department, providing the insight, both coming from product. Basically, with this cloud architecture, you have an, we have an ability to look at product telemetry data as well as business transaction data and intersecting them. The magic is the real insights are when we intersect these two data, join these two data and do a cohort analysis. Cohort analysis at product level, at segment level, particularly for large enterprise companies, our size and bigger, we'll have customer segmentation, we'll also will have some flavor. So in geo dimensions or other dimensions, once we connect the data around product, and then customer lifecycle from business transactions, it could be sliced and diced from many different perspectives. And that's where the insights comes, but it goes one step further. What the new architecture allows is sometimes those insights doesn't have to reside just in a reports. It could be fed through API-led approach. 
into transacting application in the past past reporting or be a traditional bi analytics you can't even update a single record from your, you, you can only read it's a read only view gonas wrote this now these are bi-directional you can take action in the platform where the action is supposed to be taken and that's where i was talking about the convergence piece particularly this convergence is needed in the in the demand gen to cash life cycle uh, for the businesses that's where the money is that's where most of the value creation for the internally is externally is from a customer experience perspective whether i'm marketing customers whether we are sales post sales experiences being delivered in product experiences being delivered right all this capturing in a very digitized way very interesting what you said about the real insight is the intersection of product data and business data right and then the ability to feed that back is is very critical so i think with subscription model that real time becomes critical there's no time for copying data processing data fixing it i mean you should do that but you do it all at, at real time speed more or less uh, and then also you know you're migrating from tools now you're not dependent i think i mean i said that is you're not locked into one tool sometimes in enterprises you're locked into one data warehouse or tool because it's impossible in a system that is running to migrate to another tool it's just impossible because by the time you do the migration and move the data the data has been updated in the production system and you don't have time so a lot of people just sit with legacy systems because they cannot migrate right so i think i think use real time processing doing it cleverly with clever architecture not copying data all this stuff and there are a lot of interesting companies that are doing all and a ton of companies doing it in consumer space right I, i bet netflix is following me and saying hey this guy is not clicking on this content for the last week he's going to to prime maybe it's time to refresh the content or show something else for us because i'm going to drop this something right and come back to what's later it's not like it's not a rather quiet it's just that i don't see anything you so let me get out of here and come back when you have something interesting to show so the, i think the ability to track all those in real time with the subscription model becomes extremely critical um, so i think i think that is the that is the urgency for data hey bas you said something if i may add to that uh, very interesting i'm personally inspired by looking at some of the innovative thing in consumer space and then trying to bring to enterprise enterprises are slow moving things and all that stuff but disruptive work happened in consumer space even there like i talked earlier about convergence of transactional and analytics has already done in any single sticky consumer applications or interfaces is already done enterprises will take several years to get there where you have a seamless access to this and insights and action together right but that's one of the thing is to look at where to look for these things i know how we we talked about this there's there's no such thing as b2b in my opinion because it's always b2c because a consumer imagine i mean i am now looking at all the bad systems i deployed now as a my own company i'm looking at working with all those large corporations with their back office building and invoicing and processing and i'm thinking how how bad these are right so so i'm looking at modern systems by consumer systems but i'm looking at these systems logging on to their legacy whatever erp whatever systems to just get paid or invoice i'm thinking i'm frustrated right because i'm a consumer even though i'm a b2b person how long does it take to upload an invoice what is it what is going on here right so i think i think the less we consider ourselves all of us are consumer business and if you look at it that way because a consumer is using it 
and the consumer is using consumer tools every day, and, and, and the younger ones, the next generation of folks, are going to be confused. You know, it's like I'm using an iPhone to do all my work, but I go to a company and they give me a BlackBerry or something. Right? It's like you, you, you can't. It is, it is, it's all consumer. It's all experience. And the Netflix, the Zooms, the Tesla, all these guys have set a standard for experience. And you cannot give any excuses. You can't say, I'm not a BGC. You know, I don't have the resources. I don't have the funding. I don't have the focus. Guess what? That's what they are all expecting an iPhone-like experience when they go use your car. It's very true. The decision makers are now coming from a generation who didn't flip the page of the book, but they flipped the, the swiped uh, iPad. That generation are becoming now decision makers. What would the base assumption for experience for them is very different. Yeah, I think what you guys have demonstrated here is that your CIOs who are very connected into the business requirements, what the business users need. And, and so I thought maybe we could end this conversation and discussion with you each sharing a call to action for data leaders. And let's leverage your 40 years plus of combined experience as CIOs and, and leave our audience with uh, some actionable uh, insights they can take uh, into their own business. Let's start with you, Basket. Let me start off to give you a few things. The first is um, focus on on business outcomes. I think Avinash said that is and, and deliver something. You know, it's always good to take a few singles and you get a home run. So don't start with, let me do the AI, ML, regenerative, chat, GPT, whatever. If it, it'll happen, do it quietly, do the experiment, but start with delivering some value today, uh, in like in 30 days. And then start doing some experimentation on all these new systems today. And it is subscription model, so your risks are very low. If you don't like the company, you, know, you pay whatever, you can get out next month. So it's not like how we used to do with huge capital budgets and so on. So that is one. Don't be too pragmatic. Do 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 dogmatic. You know, don't don't be um, don't don't be afraid to take a few risks. Uh, the second thing I would say is um, perhaps it's time to break up this IT and data. It decent, we keep, keep talking about decentralizing data. So the data architects, the data chiefs should look at more like mentors rather than command and control. You know, it's like you give me all the data and any data comes to me and I control the warehouse seems to be one approach. That has to just enable the freedom so that the sales folks can do what they want to do. Don't try to solve all the problems for them. Just fundamentally create some bridges for them that they could do their jobs easily and you know, take care of information security, access, whatever, but just decentralize that. Have decentralized data chiefs. Every department needs a data expert. So I think it's perhaps time to look at the structure uh, and, and divide that. And the third thing I would say is uh, the organization boundaries are getting into the way in a lot of enterprises. And it's largely because we have created too many C-suites, suite jobs. You know, previously there was one person you go to get your IT or technology. That used to be a CIO or CTO, or we used to, I, mean, I used to be called the head of IG or geek or something. It wasn't even the title. The minute you create this officer position, it creates feedback between a CISO, a CDO, a chief data officer, chief CIO, and you're fighting internal battle, and the businesses are just going to go do whatever the heck they want. So perhaps structurally, we have to kind of try to come bring it together. I mean, you don't have five CFOs reporting on finances of the company. You don't have 10 HR people. And you don't want the CEO, you don't want Vijay to be talking to eight people to figure out what to do with this strategy on, on data. So I think it's perhaps time to um, look at it, either collaboratively work together or structurally work together, because a lot of companies, that becomes a problematic and political environment. 
That's fascinating. All right, Awanash. On the same question, I share some of the viewpoint uh, that Bass shared and I mentioned up front, and I'm very personally a uh, big believer into outcome-led technology solve. So what problem are we trying to solve? What are the company-level top objectives and goals are? And then figure out what's the right technology is to go and solve. It should not be on a small experimental basis. We can see that hey, where can we use LLM or ML for uh, for solving problems or experimenting. But big bets are always business outcome to technology driven versus technology to business outcome driven. So that that is always keeping in mind and not just for CDOs or CIOs, but cascading that mindset down in the organization is very important. If you want to build an organization that is outcome-led, it shouldn't be just with the leader's job. Every engineer, every product manager should have a line of thinking between what they're doing, how the top-level outcome is enabling. That's internally in management terms is also about org alignment, right, across the objective. That's one thing. Um, Second thing is... uh, the federated approach, uh, kind of a different way of what was said about that freeing up the data. There's an industry term about freeing up the data. You look at the KPIs. If you look at most of the large industry, whether the sales or marketing and all, there is a standard set of KPIs that everybody tracks, should be tracking. And there are some unique uh, KPIs for that company because each large successful company will have some unique value prop. What is the unique thing with that company? But the problem is everybody starts from a scratch. If you have to run the sales, there is standard metrics for sales, a standard metrics for finance, a standard metric for retention in HR, legal. The it, companies reinvent the wheel a lot. It becomes bottom-up reporting that, hey, I need this report, this field, and things like that. Why don't we align on a corporate objective and I start from what are the right KPIs our leaders are being measured on, how are we measuring the health of the business, and then go down from this. Like inverted thinking, Right now we have, and it's a bottom of so report building, the demand coming, and now executive asks for, hey, this doesn't number match. We start top down that way. It will be much faster. And we don't have, in many look at any large company, you will have a report proliferations because of the bottom of thinking there. Sometimes top down thinking makes more sense. Uh, in this case, standardizing on KPI, I think is a low hanging fruit in industry. And then only 10 to 20% of the variations you can do that based on the unique value prop that your company is doing or unique customer situations that you have. Uh, these two things I will say. And the third piece is uh, data savviness uh, is everybody will need this. Test. Go forward as, as AI ML becomes uh, mainstream, even for business decision maker. Ideally, a good business decision makers are balances between the qualitative judgment call and quantitative data set to balance this out, right? And uh, equivalent of this in data is coming as a machine learning on one side and qualitative input synthesis through the generative AI and these two fields will converge. So those are the couple of advice, outcome driven, inverted KPI led driven analytics and uh, analytics driving the business, bottom ops like reporting, driving the bottom-ups, and innovation culture, prototyping, et cetera, past quality covered about. I think the biggest thing for me was uh, two things. One, uh, this idea of customer experience, you know, obsessing about customer experience, uh, whether it's Zoom or Apple. Some of these super successful brands have been successful primarily because 
they were obsessed about experience. Every little detail of the application, the the device, there's been obsessiveness. And I think that's increasingly important because like what these guys were saying, you know, the same kind of expectation is now set in enterprise too. What people are used to in consumer products, there's a whole generation that that that's expecting that in every product, whether it's consumer or enterprise. And so, so that puts a really high bar and everybody should be thinking of experience the same way as Apple does or Zoom does. Yeah. And I think that mindset of finding innovation and kind of crossing over from B2C to B2B, you know, the convergence is, is obviously there. My other takeaway was this idea that, um, you know, you can never solve data quality. You're always going to be chasing data quality. And in this subscription economy, that kind of makes it very real, right? The risk is low to try new technologies. And, you know, we didn't, like as a CIO uh, for, you know, 20 plus years, you know, it was a very different world 20 years ago when you're buying on-prem software. It was a, a major investment. You're making a big bet on a vendor and you're building entire teams and organizations uh, around that. Uh, but in the subscription economy with SaaS, uh, technologies, you know, a, a startup betting on a startup isn't a massive risk, and that's where you're going to get your uh, kind of, kind of the, your biggest opportunities uh, for a step function in your business. And I thought that was a very valuable advice um, to CIOs who are looking at new technologies, especially as new initiatives arise. I think generative AI is you know, a perfect example of that right now. Like everybody's got to make an investment there. Everybody in, who's in it is a startup, uh, but it's very low risk to, to stand up new initiatives around. Yeah, you're perfect is the enemy of good, right? You know, get started somewhere. Don't work, wait for the perfect solution. And, and the cloud architectures make it much easier that you can plop in different analytics tools that work off your central data warehouse and the risk is low. You can give it a try and that it's not a very heavy lift like some of the larger enterprise projects. So, so that was great insight. The other, other thing around insights and analytics, what Avinash said about the key insights come from the intersection of product data and business data. And that's obviously very dear to what we talk about at NetSpring. It was great to see that reinforced by him that, you know, if you, if you, the, the, the high value insights do not come from just the product data. It comes when you intersect that product data with business data. And that's where you can make business impactful analytics work. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bask and Awanash. It was a real pleasure chatting with you both. That concludes today's show. Thank you for joining us and feel free to reach out to Vijay or I on LinkedIn or Twitter with any questions or suggested topics for the future. So until next time, goodbye.